For better or worse, what's going on in human enterprises is often unspoken, unseen or unknown. In this show, we talk to the clinical psychologist Geoffrey Hull about how he uncovers what's happening with leaders and their organizations. Welcome to The Evolving Leader. I'm Scott Allender, along with my British buddy, the always inspiring and thought-provoking Mr. John Gomes. How are you oh. feeling today, John? Well, thank you very much. I'm feeling much better after that very kind introduction from you. And I'm feeling really good. And um, partly because Emma Raducanu is into the finals at the uh, the Open in Flushing ah. Meadows, which is very exciting. have a bit of involvement cool. in, in uh, UK tennis, as you know. Um, yeah. So that's really, really exciting. And I'm really looking forward to our, uh, talking to our guest, who I don't know anything about really at all. So um, I'm curious and open. So um, yeah. yeah. How are you feeling, Scott? Uh, well, it's Friday, and I'm feeling um, I'm feeling really good. It's going to be a beautiful weekend finally here in Tennessee, and I'm planning a long bike ride tomorrow and getting outdoors quite a bit, and uh, just really excited about that. And as you are, I'm filled with zeal and energy about talking to our guests, who I don't know yet either, but excited to get to know. Let me set the table today. So uh, today for our leadership feast, we are joined by Jeffrey Hall. Jeffrey is an author, educator, and consultant with over 20 years' experience partnering with C-suite executives on issues of high-performance leadership, change management, organizational strategy, structure, and culture. He's the author of Flex, uh, The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World, and is a highly sought-after facilitator, keynote speaker, and executive coach to both nonprofit and for-profit global organizations. Dr. Hull is the Director of Education and Business Development at the Institute of Coaching and is a clinical instructor in psychology at Harvard Medical School and an adjunct professor of leadership at New York University. Jeffrey, we're delighted you're here. Welcome to The Evolving Leader. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. We're delighted to have you on. Um, So let's jump straight into your work. You have more than two decades working as an executive coach and organizational psychology. But in your bio, you said something I found intriguing. You see yourself more as an organizational anthropologist. Can you paint us a picture of what that looks like and why the distinction is important? Oh, yeah, I love that. Um, And thank you for the question. And thank you for uh, that great introduction. I think the reason I love to use that word anthropologist because I'm and and to be you know straight up honest I am not a trained anthropologist I'm a trained clinical psychologist but what I love about the theme that that's underpinning anthropologist is I do consider myself to be a detective for the unseen and I think the way organizations work effectively or even dysfunctionally is often Um, directly connected to things that are going on with the leader or with the culture or with the organizational design that are not quite obvious to the naked eye. So as a coach, I consider it part of my job to get underneath the surface, look for the symbols, look for some of the energetic dynamics that are going on between people. Um, and that's where it, it, it kind of reconnects to what I would call anthropological approach. In other words, looking for sort of the hidden uh, messages, things that are unseen, unspoken, maybe the elephants in the room. But everybody talks about elephants in the room. But what about the little animals that are scurrying around, right? That's, mm. that's the part that I think anthropologists are excited about. Mm. 
there's two parts to what you've said there. One is that the things that that people don't even know is happening. You know, they're, they're kind of almost hidden from them. And then there's the elephants in the room, which is what everybody knows, but nobody's talking about. Right. Um, so how do you as a, you know, an individual get to the point where, you know, because that takes quite a lot of um, courage often to raise those topics with particularly charismatic types of leaders. Um, you don't really want those things to be aired a lot of the time. How do you find the the best ways of doing that in your work? Well, I think it's about timing and confidentiality and phraseology, right? So when I know I'm going to ask a provocative question of one of my clients, I make sure I pay attention to the right time to do that, to the right setting to do that, and to the right level of confidentiality to do that. So, you know, bursting into a virtual uh, executive, executive call with 12 people on a Zoom call and asking them some very provocative question and catching my client off guard is probably not going to be my modus operandi. On the other hand, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one session after a discussion with a group in which these days mostly virtual settings, I might go, go for it ask a question that's not what my client is expecting to hear. And I think that's what we're, as great coaches, that's what we're really attuned in to do. So you point out that we're in the age of the sort of post-heroic leader, that charisma, the sort of you know traditional bravado found in the corner offices of corporate America now matter much less than qualities such as vulnerability and relatability. And this is something that we have espoused quite regularly on this show but can we get granular with this for a minute? I'm curious from your perspective, what leadership traits of the past, uh, those that were celebrated and often predictive of success, uh, are now irrelevant or becoming irrelevant or possibly even harmful? And, and maybe in addition to vulnerability, what are the characteristics that you're seeing are kind of the must-haves uh, for the future? Well, I think that I always want to place a caveat into that kind of question that even the what I would call traditional authoritative um, archetypes the, of the heroic leader that are giving way to what I'm calling a post-heroic frame around leadership doesn't mean I want to throw away the baby with the bathwater because there are times when an organization is in crisis or when there's an emergency or when there's a certain level of urgency and you really want the archetype to reemerge, you want decisive, authoritative, decide, uh, visionary leaders. So, you know, my take on this post-heroic leader evolution is not against the hero. It's actually a, more about expanding our definition of effective leadership to include an agile approach that's sort of taking situational leadership, which was birthed back in the 90s or 80s, and taking it to another level of granularity, to your point, which is mm. the best leaders in today's world can be authoritative, decisive, competent, strong, visionary, all of the above that we think of as that heroic archetype, and then be able to dispense with all of that in one day or in one meeting or in one series of activities. And be able to then put on a different way of, of framing their interaction with people that is 
with their people, which is participative, collaborative, uh, inclusive, to your point, Scott, more vulnerable, more emotionally attuned. So to become both is ultimately the goal, right? Um, you know, one of my trainers in the athletic space always says, don't just become strong, Jeff. You'll look like one of those guys who's got, you know, muscles and then spindly legs, right? <laughs> we see the, the people that spend all their time at the gym building up the chest muscles and the arm muscles, and then they don't pay any attention to anything like below the, below the waist. So the key is to develop both strength and flexibility. And I think that applies to leadership as well. And that's tough, isn't it? To be able to do both. It means... You know, especially when you're like in in a, in a, in a very um, demanding environment that's pushing you in one direction, but to be able to stand back and flex that. What, what have you seen in terms of the the kind of practices that help people to 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 become more adaptive like that? Well, I think it is tough, but I also have seen and worked with some pretty amazing leaders. Um, you know, in those kinds of roles where you would expect them to be, um, you know, authoritative and heroic, so to speak, from the more more traditional way we think about it, like a surgeon um, that I worked with, or the head of emergency medicine that I worked with in a hospital setting. You know, those folks have to stay strong and competent and decisive. And mm. when you're going under the knife, you better believe you don't want someone who's super vulnerable, right? You want to be <laughs> able to rely on that leader. Yeah. But at the same time, I've worked with the, like the chief of surgery at a major hospital in the U.S. that everyone knows. And that individual had the ability to run a surgical operation in the morning very decisive in a heroic, directive, authoritative, competent way. But that afternoon, and I was his coach, so I got to shadow him. Mm. That afternoon, he was in a support group with residents who were struggling because surgical residency is really difficult. Mm. And he had a completely different persona. He sat with them. They actually went outdoors. This was in the spring. They sat down on the grass. They sat in a circle. So there was no power seat. His tone was different. His energy was very open. He was listening. He had em empathy and compassion. He shared his vulnerability of what it was like to, for him when he was a surgical resident. And I, I watched how everyone came away thinking, wow, if he can do it, I can do it. And what, what, and what, what do you think is at the root of being able to, to make that switch in your mindset? And what, what are they doing inside? It's all about self-awareness. It's all about recognizing that different environmental dynamic situations call for different skills, call for different behaviors, call for different strategies. And as a leader, number one, you, your willingness to get in touch with your strengths, like know what you're good at, which is where coaching can be really helpful. And also understand where you need to tune the instrument, where you need to develop flexibility, where you need to expand your repertoire. And that's exactly what a good coach will help you do and see the benefits of that. It sounds like the surgeon too. I'm, I'm hearing this high level of humility that, that, this, that, that, that this leader brings to, to sort of not overly rely on a skill set that that is situationally appropriate for for the operating room 
but to be able to then leave any ego that might be, you know, involved or, or could get involved with that sort of identity and then humble themselves to be an active listener and to engage with people on the level and need that they, that they have. Is that thematically, is that, is that something you find from a mindset perspective needing to help other leaders with, to know that they have this strength in one area of their lives, but overusing that, it becomes a liability and there's other pools to draw from. Is that, is that a sort of thematic, um, experience you have? Yes. I would say that it's also touching on the core theme of my book, which is, you know, developing a spectrum, a spectrum of capabilities that I call from alpha to beta. And the alpha we know, right, the archetype of decisive, strong, competent, directive, visionary, strategic, all of those monikers that we know well. But the beta style of leadership may be a little more introverted, maybe a little bit more of a collaborator, a consensus builder, a listener. And that can also be really powerful when you want to empower others to participate, to come up with ideas, to feel psychologically safe in order to speak up and actually have their talent leveraged. So it's not an either or proposition, but it helps to start by knowing where you are as a leader on one end of the spectrum or the other, and then developing those, I call them the agility muscles. You know, the ability to be more vulnerable if it doesn't, if it's not your natural state. Or the, in some cases, I've actually coached some rather reluctant, almost like beta style leaders Hmm. who needed to be more decisive. People love working for them, but they sometimes say, you know, we really want Mary to actually make up her mind, not just take everybody's input. So in that case, Mary needs to develop her alpha, you know, her inner alpha, so to speak. And as a coach, what I will do with someone like that is I will ask them to reflect with me on when they've been highly competitive or when they won the scholarship or something, and they will reflect on their achievements and think, oh yeah, I went for it. I'm like, okay, so that's part of your repertoire. So just put it to work as a leader. Mm -hmm. Hi folks, Phil Kirby here, producer of the show. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader and would like to stay connected with us between episodes, follow us on Twitter at evolving underscore leader. And please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. So what I took when I was looking at your stuff was um, this sense that the evolving, the situational leadership model, which is, let's be frank, it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a cognitive model more than, more than anything else, which is which, which really useful. I mean, there's no question about it, and that's why it's lasted the test of time, because it's saying something basically true. But what you're saying is in flex, I think, is that that needs to be complemented with the inner game that's the outer game the inner game is what who do you need to be what's what's the interior uh, world that needs to change and uh, as you said you know if you're the rock star surgeon your team doesn't want you to be the rock star off the off the job <laughs> yeah they get pretty tired of it you'll be a pain <laughs> yeah, absolutely so um and that that is that you know and i come back to the fact that that is quite tough but you you're your observation around the degree of self-awareness and that self-awareness being operating at lots of different levels. Um, what, what, what is the, the, in that coaching that you do around tr- people trying to develop that awareness? What's, what do you find is the hardest part of that? 
Well, I think that you're touching on something when you talked about the evolution of uh, situational leadership going from a cognitive external to internal. So first of all, getting your client or getting the leader to be self-reflective, to take a little extra, because that takes time. Mm-hmm. And all of them are always moving to do, to do, to do, task, task, task. And it's like, you've got to stop. You've got to breathe. You've got to reflect. So the first challenge to your question, Gene, is for getting is getting the leader to slow down long enough to have an interactive, reflective stance, to think about their strengths, to think about what the situation calls for, to consider options. So that's the first issue. The second issue that I think is uh, that you were, you were kind of pointing to, the, but I think is also really crucial, and I spend the whole last part of my book on this is that it's not just the inner world or the emotional world. It's also taking a look at the outer world in a broader, deeper contextual framing, which means to consider the energies of the outer space. I call it the somatic component of leadership, which is thinking about how you actually show up physically, your eye contact, your hand gestures, your seating arrangements, where are you meeting? And this is even more relevant now when we're meeting in virtual space. How do you get people to feel connected when they're all in little boxes on your screen? You know, yelling at them isn't going to work. <laughs> they're just going to turn off their videos and they're going to do something else, right? So there's a whole somatic component. And there's a number of case studies in my book that I talk about where the situational leadership dynamic that you're pointing to is really honed in around executive presence, right? And this is sort of, you know, case studies in the real world, but imagine even if you're being vulnerable and empathic and you're handling a situation, giving feedback to one of your um either your direct reports, but you're sitting in your chair with your feet up on the desk with your hands behind you, like, you know, behind your head. Like, what kind of signal are you sending? Or if you're doing a really important feedback session and you keep looking at your iPhone because you keep getting texts, how is that person going to feel? Now, you may be empathetic, you may be directly connecting, but if you've got your phone going off every five seconds... I know I don't like it when I'm with someone who's constantly looking at their iPhone. So these physical somatic elements of executive connection of presence are really, really crucial. And to your, so that's where the evolution of situational leadership has, is now including a lot more than just that cognitive, oh, this situation calls for X because you know the rational person is up in the fourth quadrant of the box. There's a lot more to it. The origin of this podcast is a shared belief between Scott and I that we needed a deeper, more committed form of leadership to confront the world's biggest challenges. And and we believe that leadership can come from virtually anywhere. We see it all the time. Um, And from what I've read, you you share a similar belief that leaders can be found and developed anywhere. I think you kind of alluded to that earlier on. How how did you come to that insight? What, what, What was it about your research and experience that led you down that path? It's a combination of factors, but you know, one is watching my own coaching practice evolve from 20 years ago when it was mostly very senior baby boomer white men who were all very much that archetypal leader, 
being told, you know, being told to get a coach to tone it down a little or to become a little more visionary or whatever, you know, 20 years later, I pretty rarely have an archetypal heroic white male. I have all sorts of other things, you know, they come in every flavor, every culture, every race. Um, so the diversity of my own practice led me to do research at the Institute of Coaching at Harvard, where I'm part of the team, and, and do surveys and focus groups and discussions with many, many coaches around how they were seeing the coaching practices evolve. And so it started to become a theme that what it takes to be successful in today's networked, flatter, more communitarian, more culturally and racially diverse environment is a very different kind of leader. And I wasn't the only one experiencing that. The goal ultimately is to have everyone understand the value of not only having a coach, but in a sense, being coaching in their mind, coaching oriented in their mindset, that they can develop themselves as a leader by understanding where they start and what they need to do to grow. It's like um, seeing yourself as, a, as playing a musical instrument and then realizing you have the ability to play a lot of musical instruments. You might even be able to be a conductor of the symphony. So it's that having that expansive mindset around leadership. So maybe we should, we should turn to your book a little bit more directly. Um, you lay out a leadership model under the acronym FIERCE, uh, F-I-E-R-C-E. Can you take us through that? Yeah, I mean, I'll just touch quickly because obviously there's a lot of case studies and it's a whole model. But the idea was that when I was researching how the focus has shifted over time in the coaching profession, what we're asked to do as coaches with our clients, there were six key themes that kept coming up over and over and over again. And so for the sake of an acronym and for the sake of a model, I distilled them down to fierce. But basically, it's decision-making, obviously key to be successful as a leader, the spectrum from decisive to more consensus-oriented, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. The second, is, so flexible decision-making is the first. Second is communicating, intentional communication. How do you reach your audience? How do you persuade and influence and motivate people? And there are a whole spectrum that's been studied around how to communicate in different modalities, whether it's you know, email or, or a town hall or Zoom. So communication strategies for effective influence is number two. Third is emotional agility. We've already touched base, touched on this, is developing a sense of your own emotional skills and your willingness and ability to be present with your feelings and also the capacity to work with empathy and listening and connect with emotions with others. So emotional agility. And then I call uh, the next category realness for the sake of the model, but it's really about authenticity. And we've touched on this, that spectrum from competence and strength to humility and vulnerability hmm. and everything in between. And the ability to, to be competent and strong and humble and vulnerable, all, let's say all in one day. So that is the authenticity space. The fourth is collaboration. And that's about how to engage with a group in ways that incorporate advising, mentoring, coaching, 
listening, recognizing the distinctions as a leader between those different modalities so that you get the best out of a collaborative brainstorming dynamic. And then finally, engagement is the E, the last in the, in the six um, categories. And that's taking what I mentioned just earlier with Gene, which is taking the space, the energy, and the presence of the group to another level, paying attention to the somatic, physical, energetic aspects of gathering, whether it's gathering virtually or gathering in the real world, to really pay attention to those symbolic Getting back to your very first question about anthropology, the things that are unseen in the physical space or in the virtual space, what's on the wall behind you, for example, bookcase or pretty pictures, the spouse, you know, all of those things are actually really important because they send a signal to the others on the other end of the video, or whether people use their videos or don't use their videos, little things like that. So that's more about the energetic space of engagement. And I get in the book, I get really into the details around how to create that energetic space of engagement. John's got all these chairs in his background that I've never understood. They seem to be facing nowhere. So I'm not really into your <laughs> somatic energy back there, Mr. Gomes. I need my to work on that. My, my feng shui isn't working for you. <laughs> no. No, uh, that, this is COVID related. <laughs> this is uh, like instead of meeting in, a, in any of the, so all the meeting rooms that are surrounding this big open space, we're not really using them. So these are the chairs from there, so that uh, we can be in a big, healthy, open space with a lower risk of. Okay, well, see now now that I understand it better, I like it better. It's a great example because it's something that we very we we spend very little time and energy talking about or thinking about, and yet it's very impactful. You know, we at the Institute of Coaching had a whole webinar on how to communicate on Zoom. And it was run by a nurse. And the reason that we had a nurse run the session on communication is because she was an expert on how to communicate with patients. You know, people that are in the hospital, patients with a T. And she developed a research protocol for how to make people feel safe, how to develop trust. You have to show your hands occasionally. Otherwise, people think you only are from the neck up. You know, there's little details about looking in the camera and all of that. Anyway, the point is that I thought to myself, a whole hour on how to communicate on Zoom? That'll, that, there's no way. Believe me, it was incredibly enlightening to learn all the little details. You know, as a nurse working with patients, she has developed that ability to have a bedside manner and really study what it takes to make those connections and there's more to it than just the words well as you were speaking and you you know you obviously when you mentioned the fact that you need to show your hands you showed your hands and there was a there was a well there was a uh, a, a, a reaction in me which was which was positive in that yeah that makes total sense because we're looking at people in these very very kind of almost um I don't know how to describe it, but you, you, you're getting such a reduced amount of information. Mm -hmm. So you're decontextualizing a human being. You're looking at them almost like a series of noughts and ones, whereas just a little bit more information and they become human again. It's in interesting. The little details start to really matter a lot. Well, when we don't have it, there's a lot of research out there that is pointing towards how much more energy we have to use trying to fill in the blanks that we can no longer contextualize the same way we would when we were sitting there in person. So if I don't see John's body language, I'm kind of 
reading his face more and I'm kind of expending a lot more energy just trying to get the information that I otherwise would have uh, right before me in, in uh, the real world, as you say. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That all of these little things are, we're kind of learning by fire because, you know, these virtual spaces are relatively new. It was already starting a couple of years ago, but now it's ubiquitous and it's not going away anytime soon. So as a leader, you really have to start to hone in on the instrument or, you know, pay attention to your tone, your pace, the quality of the way you're interacting, your presence in so many different domains, so many different dimensions. So it's, I call it situational leadership on steroids. <laughs> Given you, 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 anybody writing a book has invested a vast amount of time in consolidating their worldview and, and ideas. And um, I'm interested in the process for you. Did, did something new emerge for you that you, 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 know, you thought, well, hadn't really considered this before? Was there, was there an, any aha moments in the, in the writing of the book? Oh, I think there were many. Um, the first one was you have to be crazy to uh, <laughs> write a book in today's <laughs> world. <laughs> Um, and also working with a with one of the last remaining major publishers, I was you know fortunate enough to work with Penguin Random House, which was a great gift, but also very challenging. Um, but a wonderful overall, wonderful experience. Uh, I think probably the uh, the big aha for me has been doing these kinds of podcasts and having so many people that have had a chance to read the book or, or peruse it be really interested in this somatic element that seems still to be quite new to a lot of people. And it was a big chunk of what I wrote about in the last part of the book where I talked about collaboration and engagement, you know, creating the energetic space. But I find that people are really interested in this. And so this has been a big aha for me that, um, and the book came out just as the pandemic was hitting. And I, you know, for me, that initially, I focused on that as a leader, you need to create an environment with your team, you know, where people feel safe, psychological safety. I'm sure you've heard, know Amy Edmondson's work, and you know, so it was all about that sort of sense of cohesion and customizing the space and the time and all of that. And then now it's become a huge aha because it's all virtual. And so it's become really interesting. And I go back and I read my own writing and I'm thinking, wow, this was really pretty prescient of me to spend so much energy on this, even though I didn't know that it was <laughs> going to become so crucial to the success of many leaders. Um, but I'm glad I did because the, the physical presence elements um, the energetic source of connection is, is just becoming so crucial to our success with, with these virtual spaces that we're all inhabiting. Um, I can tell you the, the number of times I've had my clients say to me, Jeff, what do I do when everyone turns off their video? <laughs> and I'm like, well, let's put on the anthropological hat and let's step back and think a little bit about what's going on with the people turning off their videos. I think there's some energy there that's being, you know, it's like you can't dictate to them to put on your video. That's going to backfire. So how can you encourage people to put on their video? 
How can you make people comfortable with putting on their video? How can you make, make people think it's fun to put on their video? And I've had wonderful coaching conversations that around, you know, everybody bring their favorite food to the Zoom and they have to eat together like they used to eat together in the real world. And at first it was very awkward, you know, but I'm like, yeah, have a glass, have a beer and, have, and share your recipes with people. And guess what? It works. People are people. They want that kind of experience. You can recreate that. It, it's not as good as the real thing. And we all want to get back to the real, you know, coffee, coffee uh, cafe chance to chat with people and be with people in the real world. But now that that's kind of being put on hold again for most people for the time being, you really can, you can have an engaged um, virtual connection with people, but you got to pay attention to the details. You got to have everybody bring their favorite cocktail. <laughs> and then they have to hold up their hand and share it and say, this is my favorite mar mojito. Let me tell you what I did to make it and go around the room. And then if, guess what? My client, I'm, I'm giving you an example, but I, I actually had this happen with one of my clients who was having issues with people not turning on their videos, not showing up. I said, have a Zoom cocktail party and have everybody bring their favorite cocktail. And he said, Jeff, they all showed up and they all had incredible cocktails and we're all going to become bartenders. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, see, you know, people, people want to play. They want to participate. Just don't make it all about, you know, turn on your video and let's get to the to-do list. We're human beings, mm -hmm. guys. We want to be connected. We want to be um, feeling that sense of social connection. Try to recreate that. So anyway, it's probably the biggest aha is how important that part of my book turned out to be. Well, that's a great place to to kind mm -hmm. of bring things to a close. Um, before we do go, um, what, what's next for you in terms of your your priorities, the things that you're most curious about that you're going to be kind of pushing at? Oh, I love that's a great question because I'm pushing hard now to get um, some intersection between this wonderful work that's being done in the design architectural space around what's called regenerative mindset. It is sort of the next level of eco-sustainability. And it's, it's emerging in a big way in the built space, you know, people building communities, people building housing, people looking at the natural world, biomimicry and eco-sustainability. And that, you know, the, I think the most up-to-date version is called regenerative mindset, you know, thinking about regeneration as opposed to just sustainability. And what I'm really interested in is trying to map that way of thinking, that mindset into the day-to-day -day world, like at banks and software companies and hospitals and places that where, you know, they're in the dark ages when it comes to eco-sustainability, but they don't have the luxury of staying in the dark ages. We just had two hurricanes. I went to New York and we had two hurricanes in a week. Mm. Like we have to get our act together as a, as a species. And so that's what I'm really energized about. There's this amazing work being done in the design, architectural engineering, eco-sustainable space. And I wanna get leaders in other industries to think that way, to think about the impact they're having, to think about how they really do have an impact on the planet in their communities, with their children, with the future. So that's 
you can probably hear the passion in my voice. That's what I'm excited about. And I try to stay optimistic, even in the midst of California burning. And, you know, it's hard because things are really moving fast, but I have faith. Um, and there may be another book in me around this. We'll see. Uh, I don't know that I have time to write it. <laughs> but thank you for the question. And that hopefully your listeners will also get engaged around there's a role for leaders to play in creating a sustainable future for our children. Absolutely. Jeffrey, thank you for sharing your wisdom and insights with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure, Jeffrey. Thank you so much. All right, my friends, be sure to order a copy of Flex today. And until next time, remember the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?